Now, I want to begin this evening with a little bit of a uh, Bible quiz, and it is going to require some audience participation this evening. What I want to do is I'm going to provide a name, a biblical name, and I'd like you to identify the person, place, or thing that is most associated with that biblical name. It's not difficult, don't worry, and there's not a grade at the end, so you don't have to worry about that. So here's how it's going to work. Adam and... Good job. Cain and... I'm bolstering your confidence in your Bible knowledge. That's the Noah and flood, the flood. Abraham and interesting. We had a little bit of a split decision there, didn't we? Some said Sarah, some said Isaac. What about Jacob and Esau? Um, What about David and who said Bathsheba? For those of you who said Bathsheba, I'd like you to know that at the close of this sermon, the elders will be down here to uh, take your response and pray for you. I'm just kidding. Jonah and... Some of you said well. Some of you said fish. Why is it that when we think of the story of Jonah, we associate him primarily with a fish... That only gets mentioned four times in the entire book, while God gets mentioned 38 times in 48 verses. The fish is not a primary character in the story of Jonah. God is. And we need to remember that because the story of Jonah is not about a great fish. The story of Jonah is about a great God. In fact, We need to realize that the reason the book was written, as one preacher so eloquently said, is not for us to wrestle with whether or not a man can be swallowed by a fish and live to tell about it, but to wrestle with whether or not a man will allow himself to be swallowed by the mission of a great God. This story, or or at least the first three chapters of the book of Jonah, well, it's a prominent VBS subject or Sunday school subject. And we need to rescue this story, or rather reclaim this story, from childhood. Because there are so many vital lessons to be learned from Jonah. So for the next few weeks, we're going to dive into the story of Jonah, pun intended. And we'll begin tonight by considering why Jonah said no when God said go. Now, to do that, we've got to begin by noting a few things about Jonah that we can learn from the text. In particular, look at the first verse of Jonah chapter 1. It simply says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Right here we're told who who is the, 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 the primary character in the story other than God. And we know this about Jonah, that he was an early 8th century prophet of Yahweh. His prophetic ministry may have even overlapped with Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. He's mentioned in one other time in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. There's this passing reference to Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who apparently prophesied that the border of Israel would be restored, and that prophecy was fulfilled during the reign of Jeroboam II. 
That's the only other time Jonah, the son of Amittai, gets mentioned in the Bible. Now, we know that Jonah was a prophet, but what was his mission? What was his assignment? You can see that in verse 2 of Jonah chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That was Yahweh's words to Jonah. That was Yahweh's assignment to Jonah. So Jonah was instructed by God to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And he's, there, he's to go there and call out against it. Now this is significant because most of the time God sent his prophets to his people. Most of the time prophets were assigned the job of going to the Israelites with a prophetic message. But there are a few occasions when God sent his prophets to other nations. Such was the case with Obadiah. He was sent to the nation of Edom. Nahum, who like Jonah was sent to Nineveh approximately 150 years later. And then, of course, there's Daniel and Ezekiel who were sent to Babylon during uh, the, the uh, time that the Israelites were exiled there. Why did God send prophets to nations that didn't even follow him? I think it's because, as John chapter 3 and verse 16 so succinctly says, God so loved the world. And that's Jonah's assignment, to go to a foreign nation, to a people who don't obey God, and speak to them about him. But as you know, or as you may know, the story of Jonah centers around his response to this assignment, which you can see in verse 3 of chapter 1. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You see, Jonah said no when God said go. In other words, Jonah rejected God's assignment. I know the text doesn't explicitly say that. But that's what we can infer from the fact that Jonah chose to go in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, what can really help us here is a map. Seeing Tarshish and Nineveh on a map. If you'll notice on the right-hand side of the screen, you have the Middle East. The eastern border or the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea is where Israel was located and the town in which Jonah is called from would be in that area. But what Jonah up and does is he travels down the coast to Joppa. The, where he was in, in the town of Gath Hefer, it was a small city in northern Israel, just a few miles west of the Sea of Galilee. If he were to go straight to Nineveh, that would have been about a 500-mile journey east. But instead, he dropped down to Joppa and got on a boat and travel, with the intent of traveling to the town of Tarshish, which is located in modern-day Spain, some 2,500 miles west. Tarshish, in the eyes of the people of the day, was near the edge of the known world, 
on its western side. In other words, Jonah was trying to go in the exact opposite direction of where he was told to go and to go as far in that direction as he possibly could. He was literally running from God's assignment. I mean, Jonah didn't just reject God's assignment. He attempted to eliminate himself as a candidate for it. That's how desperately he was trying to get out of this. And what's so shocking about Jonah's story is that all other prophets we really read about obeyed God when God gave them assignment, even difficult assignments. I mean, think about Elijah. He was instructed by God to appear before the most wicked king in Israelite history, the very king whose wife had ordered the execution of all of God's prophets. And when God instructed Elijah to go there and stand before King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and announce that there was going to be a drought, guess what he did? He went. And when God was looking for a representative to speak to Israel, Isaiah volunteered saying, Here am I, send me. Little did Isaiah know that God would instruct him to walk around barefoot and naked for three years as a way of prophesying the future imprisonment of the nation of Israel, which you can read about in Isaiah chapter 20. But even when that difficult assignment came, Isaiah went. And when God instructed Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman to serve as a living metaphor for the relationship between himself and Israel, Hosea went. Prophets have been given some really difficult assignments. And most of the time they went. But in Jonah's case, he didn't. And by the way, when the text said that Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord, we need to realize that that Jonah was quite familiar with the book of Psalms. In fact, in a few weeks, we'll look at Jonah chapter 2 and this prayer he prays from the belly of this great fish. And nearly every statement in that prayer was a quote from the book of Psalms. And I think that's important to note because I'm certain Jonah likely knew Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10. Where David, 200 years earlier, wrote these words. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew he couldn't get away from the presence of Yahweh. But I don't necessarily think that's what he was running from. I think instead of running from the presence of the Lord, he was running from the service of the Lord. Running in the opposite direction of Nineveh was a reaction to God's assignment rather than God's perception. He knew God knew where he was. He just didn't want to be where God wanted him to be. And so Jonah said no when God said go. But why? What motivated Jonah to say no to God? Could it have been the difficulty of the mission itself? There's no doubt that the mission would have been challenging. In fact, the mission's difficulty is clearly expressed in the commission God told Jonah that Nineveh was a very great city in the second verse of chapter 1. Nineveh has been identified as one of, if not the largest city in the world during its heyday. 
The book of Jonah tells us that the city was so large it took three days to cross it in chapter 3 and verse 3. Now, this reference to Nineveh being a three days journey or a three days breadth appears to be a figure of speech intended to depict the impressive size of the city rather than a literal rendering. But we should also note that in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, God said that there are more than 120,000 people in Nineveh. In other words, for that day and age, this was a metropolis. So for one man to arrive all alone with a message from an unknown God against such a city was somewhat ludicrous. What could one man do? Who, who would listen? If Jonah had been overcome with the thought of the difficulties of such a mission and chose to flee to Tarshish because of those difficulties, then we might be a little bit sympathetic towards him. Yet not a word in the story indicates that it was the difficulties that concerned Jonah. So Jonah didn't flee because of the difficulty of the mission. But maybe it was the danger. Maybe it was the threat. You know, the second word in God's description of the city of Nineveh is that it was evil or wicked. If Jonah had taken note of the wickedness and had refused to obey for that reason, that would also be a little bit understandable from our perspective. Indeed, the more we learn about Nineveh, the more dangerous the mission seems. I mentioned earlier that Nahum, the prophet, was sent to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah. Nahum's entire prophecy was against the wickedness of Nineveh. And the descriptions he provides are vivid in Nahum chapter 3 in the first four verses. Nahum called Nineveh a bloody city full of lies and plunder, with hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. I didn't exaggerate those words. I quoted those words. One commentator said that Assyria, the nation for which Nineveh was the capital, Nineveh used terror as a, or Assyria used terror as a policy of state and was perhaps the cruelest regime history had known. And then what was one poor preacher to do against such wickedness? Would the people like this not just simply kill him and add his body to the already high heap of carcasses that Nahum described? Thoughts like that could have made Jonah afraid. And if he had been afraid, we would not blame him. But again, not a word in the story indicates that it was the danger of the mission that turned Jonah in the opposite direction. So Jonah did not flee because of the danger of the mission either. If it, if it wasn't the difficulty of the mission and it wasn't the danger of the mission, then what caused Jonah to run? Well, to answer that, I think you have to go to the end of the book. When you get to the end of Jonah, you'll discover in chapter 3 and verse 10 that the city of Nineveh was spared by the mercy of God. We learn that Jonah was furious about this, actually. So beginning in verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3, we find out that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then if you skip to the fourth chapter, if you, if you just keep the reading going into the first verse of the fourth chapter, you, found, you find out it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. But why was Jonah furious? Why is he angry? Why is he displeased? God just saved people. 
From our perspective, that's the time of celebration. That's the time to rejoice with the angels in heaven. So why is Jonah so upset right now? Well, look at what he had the audacity to say to God in verses 2 and 3 of Jonah chapter 4. He said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Wow, those are the qualities of God that we read about frequently in Scripture, and we extol them. We delight in them. We praise God because of them. But keep reading what Jonah said. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is saying that the reason he made haste to flee to Tarshish is because he knew that God would show mercy to the Ninevites, and Jonah did not think that was right. So the reason Jonah fled was because of his personal disdain for Nineveh. That's why he fled. Jonah knew all along that God didn't need him if God was just going to destroy Nineveh. He destroyed Sodom without a prophet preaching there. If he's going to destroy Nineveh, why does he need Jonah to go there? He doesn't. Jonah knew that by being sent to preach against Nineveh, God was really for Nineveh. Because God was giving them someone to communicate a message that just might, just might lead them to repentance. Jonah understood that, it seems. And in Jonah's mind, Nineveh deserved to be destroyed. Nineveh was the capital of an enemy nation of the children of Israel. So in Jonah's opinion, this mission is all wrong. Those people don't deserve to be saved. God wanted what was best for Assyria, and an ardent nationalist like Jonah didn't think that was best, as one preacher said. So it appears that Jonah desired the good of his people rather than the good news to the nations. He didn't share the same concern for the world that God possessed. And now I want you to think, how might we be like Jonah? I think there are three main ways that you and I end up just like Jonah. The first is when we prioritize our will over God's will. Isn't that what Jonah's doing? What he wants is trumping what God wants in this scenario. He's deciding what he thinks is best, and it contradicts what God thinks is best, and so Jonah chooses his will over God's will. His desire to see the Ninevites perish took precedence over God's desire to see them repent. And Jonah demonstrated a heart that resides in far too many of us from time to time, a heart that says, my will be done instead of your will be done. More often than we realize, we harbor feelings and make choices that basically 
imply that we think God is right, but we think our way is better. And like Jonah, we just don't go there. We don't go where God says to go because we've decided that we know what's best. For some of us, it's our standard of moral purity. God has identified his will for our lives, that we, that we will make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. And some of us don't think that restricting ourselves from enjoying the pleasures of the world is best, so we don't go there. For some of us, it's the way we handle our finances. Some people take issue with God's first fruits principle because they believe consciously or subconsciously that giving to God should come out of what's left over. After all the bills are paid, all the needs are met, and all the wants have been addressed. And so some of us don't think that it's best to give God financial property priority, I'm sorry, so we just don't go there. For some of us, it's the way we approach attendance. Some people take issue with God's expectation that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves, as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says. So instead of making an effort to be with the body of Christ whenever it assembles, some of us prioritize rest or extracurricular activities or or homework, or any number of other things. And what we're essentially saying in that moment is, I don't want to go there. And for some of us, it's the way we approach our mission. God has instructed every disciple to participate in his great commission of sharing the good news with all creation, but some people don't think that evangelistic endeavors are the best use of their time, their talents, or their energy. And so they just don't go there. And the book of Jonah wasn't written to tell us to learn what God wants. The book of Jonah was written to make us face the reality that sometimes we know what God wants and we just don't want to go there. So I challenge each of us to ask ourselves this evening, in what part of my life am I saying no when God is saying go? But that's not the only way we can be like Jonah. We can also become like Jonah when we pick and choose who we think deserves to hear the good news. Scripture indicates that disciples have repeatedly struggled with prejudice with picking and choosing who gets to come to God. Maybe you'll remember in Matthew chapter 19 the occasion during Jesus' ministry when his disciples rebuked parents who were bringing their children to Jesus and they were trying to pick and choose who deserved to see Jesus. And children were at the bottom of the list until Jesus told them to let the children come to me. Or maybe we'll think about the first century church. Disciples struggled with the issue of circumcision in its earliest days. Some early Jewish Christians could not accept salvation apart from circumcision. So they advocated that unless you were circumcised, then you could not be saved. You can see this in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1. In other words, they were trying to pick and choose who deserved salvation based on outdated legal requirements. Or maybe you'll think about the letter written by James. In his letter, he called out socioeconomic issues as a reason for, for picking and choosing who comes to Christ. 
He instructed his readers to show no partiality and warned them that if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Because apparently, some churches were showing favoritism, extending a hand of fellowship only to those who had money and not to those who didn't. You see, a mentality of picking and choosing is an affront to God. Since Scripture asserts in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 that God shows no partiality, or as the King James Version says, God is no respecter of persons. And yet, despite our growing political correctness and preventing prejudice in the public sphere, I fear that some Christians still decide who they will share the gospel with based on the color of someone's skin, the accent on their tongue, the clothes on their back, or the address of their residence. I'm afraid that we still consciously or unconsciously pick and choose who hears the invitation of Christ. And that's a problem because Scripture asserts that heaven possesses the most inclusive invitation ever. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Heaven's invitation is for everyone. And that's why God's assignment is to go to everyone. The Great Commission likely comes to mind when I say that. And most of us are aware that Jesus instructed his disciples to go into all the world and proclaim the, good, the gospel to the whole creation, as Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 says. Or maybe you're familiar with Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 where it says, go and make disciples of all nations. But are you as familiar with Luke's rendition of the Great Commission? It appears in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and it is out there printed on our mission hallway. And in that text, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the important thing to notice there right now is the reference to Samaria. Throughout his ministry, the the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was well documented. So when Jesus included the Samaritans in Luke's recounting of the Great Commission, he puts it there to remind the disciples that their mission included even those those whom they despised. All too often, we only want to target those who look like us, talk like us, and act like us. And that's an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to learn that from Jonah and not become like him in that regard. One final observation, though. We become like Jonah when our earthly identity matters more than our heavenly identity. I want you to go back to Jonah chapter 1 with me. And I want you to notice what was most important to Jonah. When Jonah was on that boat sailing for for Tarshish, a fierce storm threatened the boat. It resulted in the sailors casting lots to determine which of them was the cause of the storm, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked Jonah in Acts chapter 1, excuse me, not in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 8. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They've got a whole list of questions. But their first question is on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
It's in the very next verse that Jonah will give his response. And I want you to notice the first thing he says in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Why didn't he start with the part about fearing the Lord and then get to the part about being a Hebrew? I think he led off with an I am a Hebrew because he cared more about that identity than he did of being a child of God. When our earthly identities take precedent over our heavenly identity, there's a problem. Because Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our primary identity. Before you're a citizen of this country, you're a citizen of heaven once you are born again. Before you are a, a, a person on this earth associated with any kind of institution on this earth, you are first and foremost a child of God when you put on Christ in baptism. And I'm afraid that far too many Christians are wearing another identity ahead of their heavenly citizenship. That was part of Jonah's problem. That was part of the reason he didn't want Nineveh to be saved, because he wanted what was best for his nation, not his God. Don't let that be the case with you. Who you are in Christ is far greater than who you are in this world. So I want to close out tonight with three big questions. Questions that you need to ask yourself, that I need to ask myself before we leave tonight. First, ask yourself, who is your Nineveh? Who is it that God is assigning you the responsibility of reaching? Is it that neighbor who doesn't look like you, talk like you, or act like you? Is it that coworker or classmate who everyone distances themselves from because they're just a little different or because they get on everybody's nerves? Is it that stranger you noticed at the store who obviously looks distressed? Is it that family member from whom you've grown distant? Who is your Nineveh? Who are you intentionally choosing not to go to right now? What's interesting about Jonah's story is that Jonah ran from Nineveh because its inhabitants were his enemies, and yet Scripture affirms that we serve a God who ran to his. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says that while we were enemies, enemies of God, Christ died for us. So if we're going to be like Christ, then we're supposed to run to the people that we want to run away from. Who is your Nineveh? Also ask yourself, where is your, what is your Tarshish? What is the place that you run to in order to avoid doing what God wants you to do? Is it your career? God, I'm just too busy. I have to provide for my family. So I can't do what you want me to do right now. Or is it your hobby? God, I need some me time. So I can't do what you want me to do right now. Maybe it's even your family. 
God, you want me to prioritize my family, and that's what I'm trying to do, so I can't go there right now. Maybe it's even the practice of your faith that you run to. God, I'm not going to put you first in my finances, but I will read my Bible every day. God, I'm not going to share my faith with that person I work next to, but I'll teach a Bible class. And we hide, we hide our nose by choosing different goes. Realize this, if God's only target in this whole story was Nineveh, then wouldn't he have just found someone else to go besides Jonah? See, I don't think God was just pursuing Nineveh. I think he was also pursuing Jonah. Not because he needed Jonah, but because Jonah needed him. And so do we. Because as one preacher said, we are never going to become our best until we agree with what God says is best. So where's your Tarshish? What is your Tarshish? What is that place you run to to avoid the responsibilities God has for you? And one final question. What is your identity? Is your identity centered around your nationality? Is your identity centered around your ethnicity? Is your identity centered around your political leanings? Is your identity centered around your fandom? Is your identity centered around your history? Or is your identity centered around your wealth? There are so many things that we can calibrate our identity to. But unless we're calibrating our identity to God, we've got the wrong identity. Because our citizenship is in heaven. What are you choosing to be your primary identity? There's an unfinished statue by Michelangelo that I've mentioned before. It's called the Rodanini Pieta. It depicts Mary cradling the deceased body of Jesus and was worked on by Michelangelo for more than a decade. In fact, he was working on it just six days before he passed away. It's unfinished because he was never satisfied with it. He never could get the stone to cooperate with his plan, so it never became what he envisioned it to be. One art historian said, the artist, the artist just wants it to become art, but sometimes the stone just wants to stay a stone. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 refers to us as God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And we can either be a sculpture that just wants to stay a stone, or we can be clay in the hands of a potter. Which do you think brings glory to God? But in order for us to become God's masterpieces, we have to stop running from responsibilities. We have to stop trumping His will with our own. We have to stop holding back from His mission because of our own prejudices or our own interests even. So this evening, the invitation is extended. The invitation is extended for us to not be like Jonah. The invitation is extended 
for us to prioritize God's will above our own. The invitation is extended for us to not pick and choose, but to go and do. The invitation is extended for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven all day, every day. If you're not a citizen of that kingdom right now, the invitation is offered for you to become one by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son, by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. But if you are a a citizen of the kingdom of heaven already, what's your Nineveh? What's your Tarshish? What's your identity? If you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand.